to do our work in covering this country, we have to be attuned to the human interrelations that allow you to get deep learning from people you interview. And you have to build trust to do that. And if your body somehow signifies to someone for some reason that you're not entirely trustworthy, you have to work to build that trust. America is divided both politically and in matters of diversity. These are difficult times to live in, but also difficult times to be a reporter covering this division. I'm Michael O'Connell, and you're listening to It's All Journalism. Farai Chudea is a novelist, multimedia journalist, podcaster, and radio host. She is currently a fellow at the MIT Media Lab and the journalism program officer at the Ford Foundation. Welcome to the podcast, Farai. Hi, Michael. Glad to be here. Okay, so tell me about your journalist journey. How did, what got you interested into the in this business of journalism? Well, you know, um, for me, I had a very complicated childhood that included being raised by two journalists and going through a kind of cultural dislocation when I moved from a very multicultural, upper middle class neighborhood in New York to a working income, all black neighborhood in Baltimore. And so I started really being a student of American culture and also knowing that journalism was a career you could have, you know. So the mix of, of the practical and the kind of inquisitive was really what set me going. And I'm glad that you're from Baltimore. I'm a huge fan of Baltimore. <laughs> um, so it's a great city. So now can you tell me about the work that you do at the Ford Foundation. Yeah, so I basically get to give away a few million dollars a year in journalism grants, which is terrifying and wonderful because for every grant you make, there's 10 or 100 grants that you can't make. There's an almost infinite well of need for narrative reporting that really shapes our ability to navigate these critical and complex times. So it's been a huge learning process because I really, throughout my career, have focused on being on the side of a field reporter out, you know, traveling the country. And this is the first nine to five job I've had in 10 years, which doesn't mean I've had, I've not had work. I mean, like at one point I was both a professor at NYU and a reporter at 538. So I've had plenty of work, but I tried to really keep it flexible and keep it field-based. And now I'm looking at budgets. I'm looking at, you know, the ethics of the journalism entities that come to us. I'm looking at sustainability and it's, I have to say it's a fascinating way to approach helping the field of journalism. It's very different. And I still do some reporting and some writing on the side and some broadcasting. But, you know, I have a limited amount of time right now for that. But, you know, I will always be a reporter in one way or the other. But right now I'm really helping others help the field of journalism. In that line, uh, you know, the reason that, that you and I are talking is I had the pleasure of hearing you speak at American University on the topic of covering a diverse and divided America. Sort of as a starting point to, to this discussion, you know, how well do you think the press is at covering the division that we see in America right now? If I had to give it a grade without grade inflation, I would say a C plus. And let me give you an example of why. Les Moonves, who was the head of CBS News until he was, he me too'd himself out of his very lucrative position or head of, head of CBS, not CBS News, but he was head of CBS. And so he was over CBS News. And he said on two different earnings calls where apparently people were so shocked that they leaked it to the media because those are private 
calls between investors and the CBS Corporation, Moonves said something along the lines of Trump isn't good for America, but he's great for CBS. You can easily Google it. And that idea that the structure of a corporation, which is providing the network news of one of the three major news outlets, would not just admit, but almost gloat that they put their revenues over storytelling and journalistic ethics is pretty disturbing to me. And I don't think that got enough coverage during the election because Moonves was very powerful. And I don't think people wanted to antagonize him. But I think that we have a lot of housekeeping to do because honestly, divisive narratives often sell well. You know, it's like, this isn't about partisanship or, you know, Trump versus Clinton or anything like that. It's like the whole phrase from TV news, which I've also worked in, if it bleeds, it leads, you know, lets you know that people, people who work in our industry often look to go straight for the center of conflict when I think it's great to explore the conflict, but what are you doing to frame it? Like, what is your, do you have enough knowledge of history, political science? Um, do you, have you done any field reporting on this or are you just saying, this is what the people of the Midwest think. I mean, like if you haven't actually spent a lot of time there, you probably shouldn't generalize things like that. So I think that, I think there's a lot to be done, but there is, to my mind, you know, there's a profit motive in surfacing divisive narratives and not exploring them that well. And I mean, this is not something that just happened in 2016. This has been going on for a while, uh, certainly in, in, in the, the cable news arena where you, you know, you have these sort of debate shows, you have, uh, you know, Fox News, which takes a particular stand, you know, slant to in, in the way it reports the news to sort of create this sort of confrontational narrative around all the stories. And, you know, that's something that, that, that kind of gets picked up, you know, in other news outlets, you know, cable news outlets in, in the way we report the news. And I think we see that, you know, I think a lot of people are realizing that maybe that's not the best way to, to be, uh, uh, you know, maybe it's the best way to do it if you want to, you know, get more eyes on your page. You want to, you, you know, get more, you know, viewers on on your your TV show or your website. But maybe that's not necessarily the best thing for America. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's also um, just I. This is I'm I'm actually not a hater of social media at all. I mean, I've used it for really important research that helps me with my work. But I do think that in some ways, this these questions we're talking about have always been a part of the debate over media, but the era of social media has accelerated kind of the, the hyper divisive narratives and the way in which they're transmitted. So it's, you know, the, we are, we are part of a long series of questions about how journalism should operate, but also there's something specific about our time that I don't think will be true in any other era. And what I mean by that is that, you know, social media, this is kind of the infancy of social media. It's been around for a while, but we're still kind of learning when is it useful? How do we use it? How much of our brain do we let it take up? And also, how does it interact with more traditional storytelling, including journalism? And so, so you know, we're living in complex and fascinating times for journalism, for the country, for the world. I, I too am, you know, I think I share your, your view about social media. These people who say, well, we should get rid of this or we should block this or we should control this. You know, I always come down on the side of, you know, freedom of the press, free speech. 
you know, these are just tools that we use and, you know, maybe we're not using them to the best effect or we haven't used to, to use them uh, to the best effect. And, you know, it's not that long ago that we had, you know, people talking about the Arab Spring and how, you know, how important social media was for that and, and bringing about that type of change. And but, you know, for every good thing, there's a bad thing that, that, that comes with it. So now you uh, were in 2016 election night, you were on the air when the results were coming in. You know, tell me about that mm -hmm. experience. OMG. I've, I've been in rooms for some really elect wild elections nights. Um, so way before this, on the Bush v. Gore cliffhanger night, I was on CNN with Tucker Carlson. And so, you know, that night was also, it was a long night, you know. And, um, and so, you know, like I was there for one cliffhanger. And now uh, in this past election cycle, um, I was on air from, I think, so the way that the day went was that I had been at 538 live blogging for the election. Um, then I left around 9 p.m., went to ABC's temporary. I mean, they always have these offices, but they set up, you know, they set up extra studios for the ABC digital feed, but at their main Times Square headquarters. So imagine getting off the subway, walking out into Times Square. It's a total circus. There's, you know, I mean, it's, it's kind of like election Mardi Gras. People are expecting to be ready to party. There are literally people in costumes. And I walk through this, get my makeup on, and I go onto the set of ABC Digital, um, you know, which is, it, it's an, it was, it, it is an amazing program in and of itself. And because of the, the urgency of the night, we got hundreds of thousands of viewers on the digital feed. So we're on the air and the returns start coming in and while I'm on the air, often my phone is ringing with people who are giving me, I don't obviously answer when I'm on air, but I call when we're on break. It's like someone said, oh, people are passing out at the Javits Center, you know, air quote, victory party for Clinton because they're so distressed. I had, you know, a political analyst who I know saying, oh, yeah, Trump totally won before it was called by the networks. You know, it's just imagine like traffic copying all this information. Like at one point, my phone was ringing on vibrate while I was on air. And like Amna Nawaz, one of the hosts kind of shot me the side eye and I like shoved the phone deeper under my thigh so it wouldn't vibrate so much. But it was information overload. And at the end of the night, there were a couple of shift changes. It was Amna Nawaz and LG Granderson as the host, me and Walt Hickey from 538 and Amy Holmes. And just to be on air, because I always thought that a Trump victory was possible. I didn't think he was going to win necessarily, but I had been out in the field talking to both Trump and Clinton voters. I saw a lot of the resistance among some demographics presumed to be Clinton demographics to her messaging, just sort of a tepid shrug. And then I also saw the passion and strength of the Trump voters and how well they field organized. I mean, I feel like I'm going all over the place, but I, I actually feel if you want to talk about it in another time, I feel like the Trump voters did a much better field organization than the, the Clinton voters. But in any case, it was a time where one of the things I tried to do was just bring some historic and social context to what we were seeing unfold because so many people seemed utterly shocked. I was surprised, but this was not outside of the realm of my reality based on the kind of reporting I'd done. And that's another reason why I think field reporting is really important. Like if more 
news organizations had spent more time sending people deep into, you know, communities where there were lots of Trump voters and also communities where there were lots of Clinton voters and presumed Clinton voters, we wouldn't have had such a breathless, you know, pre-coronation of candidate Clinton. And I think that was also another moment where a lot of people lost some trust in the industry because although Donald Trump dominated what's called, it's essentially the earned revenue from your free on-air appearances. You know, he, he essentially had $2 billion worth more of free airtime than Hillary Clinton did, $2 billion. And so he was both given a gift by the major news media, but also he was often mocked or taken for granted. And the Trump voters saw that, you know, I, I think there were times where we really reprehensibly as as the media overall mocked both Donald Trump and his supporters. So so I got to be there for the kind of mid-air collision, which was election night. And then I walk out into Times Square afterwards. And so remember, I came in during Mardi Gras. I go out, almost no one's on the streets, but there's this guy running down the street with a huge Trump flag you know, saying Trump, 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 we won, we won. And of course, I take out my phone and interview him because that's what I do. And so he's uh, Justin Rodriguez, 27 years old at the time, entrepreneur from Queens, New York, which is where Donald Trump is from. But Queens is a very, <laughs> a very varied. Yes, exactly. And he was there with his Muslim American girlfriend. And he made a point of saying that. And so people were harassing and heckling him because some people who didn't like that Trump had won were heckling and harassing Rodriguez. But he gave a really, you know, he gave a really interesting interview about that was just really like I had met several Trump voters of color along the road, including a woman who was Native American and Latina, who was helping out with an evangelical Christian group supporting candidate Trump. And one of the things that interviewing Rodriguez reminded me is that we can't reduce people to one aspect of their identity. So you might say, oh, a Latino guy, why would he vote for Donald Trump? It's like, it's not that simple. You know, people have very complex variables. And for him, the math was about thinking that Donald Trump would make the world better for entrepreneurs. And also he was um, anti-unrestricted immigration. He really believed that America was privileging immigrants over people who were already here. And so we have to remember that the majority of Latinos are U.S. born. And, you know, like, so things like that are what field reporting really does for you. They give you a chance to see the multi, multiple variables that shape human behavior, including political choice. So it, I just found the whole thing really rewarding. But to say that it was a long night was an understatement. And then I had to be back on blogging duty at 538. I was supposed to be like home by 1am, but it was already like 4am. So I just went, I took the subway back to the office, slept in a conference room and then started blogging the next morning. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's uh one night's uh, work. Certainly the way you were sort of talking, the, the things you kind of mentioned, you know, I remember I interviewed somebody in an old timey political reporter. And he used to talk about, you know, this was, I think I talked to him shortly after the 2016 election. And he was like, you know, when the election would come around, what I would do is I would just start driving around the neighborhoods and knocking on doors and asking people what they cared about. What was, what were the issues that they found that were most important to them? 
And, mm-hmm. you know, that, that was kind of his observation about the election is, is that, that nobody was really kind of doing that. So, you know, things look so terrible, you know, on election night because a lot of people didn't do their job. They didn't, you know, go out and knock on doors and to really understand what the, you know, take the temperature of the country and understand the complexity of it. And, you know, unfortunately, one of the, the, the side effects is something that you mentioned is, that, you know, that makes us look like we're not doing our job. And guess what? We weren't doing our job. Uh, otherwise, there wouldn't be so much surprise and shock and awe and whatever. Do you think we've learned from this? TBD. You know, I, you know, it's like, I, I really, you know, but it's, here's something. So when you ask, do you think we've learned from this? I sent the speech that I wrote to someone I know who's at a cable network. And, you know, I think that she was really upset because she's like, do you know how much we are being tarred and feathered with the fake news charge right now? And I gave a speech that was pretty critical of some of the, what I believe are patterns in not recognizing and not including certain people in the conversations around covering America and also in newsrooms. But I also recognize the fatigue of journalists who they're just doing their best and they're tired of being criticized and demonized, including from the White House, from the Oval Office. So it's it's a very sensitive time where we have to ask that the news industry does better because it's critical to our democracy and our survival. But we also have to recognize that the people in newsrooms are people, and some of them are super burnt out by this point. It's kind of complex. I mean, I just had Kyle Pope from uh, the Columbia Journalism Review on, and we were talking about a lot of these issues. And, you know, I, I was after we'd had a conversation, I was thinking a lot about very few people go into, I think, news because they want to be liked. Uh, <laughs> because if they do, then they pick the wrong, you know, career. And, you know, what happens when you're actively not liked by a lot of people? I mean, what does that do mm-hmm. for your spirit? You know, what does it do for making you want to go out each day and, and cover a story? You know, it's tough sometimes. I mean, but then again, on the other hand, and this, you know, this is kind of the vibe I got from Kyle is like, woulda, woulda, tough it up. You're a journalist. You know, you, you know that you're not going to be liked, but you have a job to do. And it's an important job. I think that's probably the thing that that I, I, I know I hang it on and other people I've talked to, it's this, we recognize that what we do is important. And I think where it's hurtful, obviously we'll get our personal feelings hurt about certain things, but where it's hurtful is when the value of our work is disavowed. Yeah. I mean, also, I think it's really important to understand one of the things I, I also talked about when I gave this speech was what I call embodied reporting, realizing that the body that you're in, while usually not your choice. I mean, you can change a lot of things about yourself, but but there is certainly the root body that you exist in. People put signifiers on it. They put signifiers on the way you talk. They put signifiers on your skin color. They put signifiers on your clothing and often come up with initial snap judgments. Do I trust this person or not? Is this person qualified um, to be doing this work or not? Do they look down on me? You know, one of the things that I have perceived was a perception, something that I've had to battle is a perception that, you know, as the New York reporter, while going to places that were challenged in economic and other ways, white, black, Native American, you have to basically say, I'm here with you. I am right here looking in your eyes. I'm not standing on a mountaintop judging you. I mean, I'm judging you, but I'm judging you at a level where we're together in communication, in community. And I think that the sort of traditional paradigm 
or one of the paradigms of journalism has been sort of that we are on the mountaintop and we are judging from a place of being above. And that's part of the problem. It's like we have to we have to realize that to do our work in covering this country, we have to be attuned to the human interrelations that allow you to get deep learning from people you interview. And you have to build trust to do that. And if your body somehow signifies to someone for some reason that you're not entirely trustworthy, you have to work to build that trust. I mean, and it's hard. And sometimes you think, oh, this is unfair. Why do I have to? But, you know, suck it up again, like you said. But also, you know, I think that one of the things that really would be helpful is to help fledgling journalists, journalism students, and other people in newsrooms understand that we need to work really hard to understand our own judgments of others. You know, people who meet us when, when we're reporters judge us and we have to understand that. But also I know when I meet certain people, I do have a gut reaction. You know, um, what I do is I just take that gut reaction and I like, you know, put it up on the whiteboard of my mind and say, Oh, you just stereotype this person in this way. Like keep an eye on that. Don't let that, we just have to be more honest. We're all human beings. And a lot of times, you know, it's not that I don't have biases. It's that I try to check them. But if you think that you have no biases, then you never check them. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, no, I I know exactly what you're saying. And I think about that a lot. This sort of line of thinking that you get into sometimes when you're a journalist of, you know, oh, yeah, I've been following this story. I know what it's about. I'll call up these three sources that I always talk to. Who knows what type of bias they might have? Not making the effort to go the extra step to look for different voices, different people, you know, and looking at a story with different angles that that uh, for people that you may not even anticipate or know are being affected by something and telling those different types of stories. And, and, you know, I think it's a a really major point that you bring out there that, you know, once you, you know, as a reporter, you know, who you are, how, how you look, how you present yourself. I mean, that says a lot about who you are, you know, people perceive things. They put a reading on you of what they think you are and what you think you're there for. And one of the things that people talk a lot about, journalists talk a lot about, is this idea we need to have more diverse newsrooms. We need to have diverse staff so that we can maybe start recognizing these stories that we're not covering because we just, you know, that that your average reporter just doesn't have that life experience of mm-hmm. dealing with a skin of a different color or, or, or uh, being a different gender. Let's, let's talk a little bit about that, about that, about the diversity. Mm-hmm. And, and there's, you know, how can that, do you think, if we work on that, help us to sort of deal with this division that we're sort of seeing? So I have often been the only woman of color on certain teams or sometimes, you know, frankly, at 538, there were, when I arrived, there was one other woman of color who was a reporter who was on her way to a new job. There was a woman of color who was a social media editor, and they both left by the time, by the end of the year, and I was the only woman of color on staff. And there were plenty of times where I just felt that some of what I had to say was dismissed and had some, you know, challenging editorial battles But, you know, it was definitely worth it to do that. And I also had some really wonderful colleagues who taught me so much about data journalism, you know, people like Ben Castleman. But it's very hard work to be an outlier in your newsroom, no matter what that outlier is, you know, whether it's gender, race, sexual orientation, educational or class background. 
And so we have to work harder on making newsrooms places where there is a flow of information that takes into account that just because someone is not the average X, Y, or Z race, gender, sexual orientation doesn't mean they're wrong. And I think a lot of times, I'm just being really frank here, you know, I was called into the office on one of my days off because I was also a professor to challenge me on a story that was about Jeb Bush's comments about free stuff, which were part of a racial narrative that black people want free stuff and somehow white people don't. And it was a super mild mannered article, easy to look up from, I think, October 2015. But I was read the riot act for air quotes, cherry picking facts. And it's like, no, I didn't cherry pick any facts. This is all super well documented in the article itself. Like I said, I'm happy to have you judge anyone judge it who reads it. But I think that the idea that there is a reality that I look for racial bias more often, but I also check myself and make sure whether it's there. So when I saw, you know, what I considered narratives that played into America's history of using race baiting as a political campaign technique, like super well documented throughout history. It's not because I was, you know, making it up, but probably one of the reasons I did spot it was because I am black. I grew up in a politically aware family. And when I became a reporter, a lot of my reporting was on race. So it's not just because I'm black, because there's black people who cover everything. It's because I am someone who has covered race relations over, you know, over 25 years and written two books on race. So it's not, you know, I think that people often mistake, they often mistake where diverse newsroom talent is coming from. It's like often when someone who is outside of the newsroom norms talks about something that is about you know, related to the community they come from. It's viewed with suspicion, but it's it's like white Americans in the newsroom do that all the time too. So a tweet I put out went viral when Kate Spade died, who was famous for her line of handbags. And they were the New York Times had something in a two-page spread, like huge article saying, you know, for a generation of women, a Kate Spade bag was a rite of passage. And I just tweeted out, I'm like, I came from a family where we shopped at the secondhand store a lot. And my mom made a lot of our clothes. Like there was no Kate Spade. I mean, like the equivalent of a Kate Spade bag was simply not accessible for my rite of passage, nor would I have wanted one because I was someone who I like quirky stuff. And, and there were a lot of cultural assumptions about what was normative. It's like, if you are someone who both wants and can afford a Kate Spade bag, you are normative. And if you're someone who's not, you're not normative. And people really reacted to that in a way that, you know, like I had one woman saying, it just got into these interesting debates. Someone was like, oh, yeah, I came from a suburban, mainly Jewish community. And yes, everyone got a Kate Spade bag when they were 16. And someone else was like, I come from a Jewish community. I worked all my way through high school. I never would have spent that kind of money on a bag and no one would have bought it for me. You know, so like into these refinements of how our identities. But one of the things that happens in newsrooms sometimes is that people who are in a majority assume that that majority is normative in ways that it's not. So that's something that we just have to check ourselves for as, as an industry. Yeah, no, that's something I've come to realize in recent years is a huge, uh, you know, issue. The, this idea that you know, if you hire people of color or, uh, or of different backgrounds, suddenly you, you've you've checked a box and everything's okay. But in actuality, it's not the the point. The point is is to be o open to different 
narratives and, and different life experiences and that, you know, it's you setting a standard of, well, this is what normal is. This is what the narrative is that we should be covering, but not being open to, to other people bringing in different life experiences. Uh, one of the things that you said got me thinking about, you know, in the last couple of years where people will talk about, you know, in, in politics, dog whistles, that when somebody mm -hmm. says some, outland some outlandish statement and you're kind of like, well, that's a weird thing to say. But then finding out later on, oh, no, the reason that they, he said that, you know, he or she, okay, it's, it's always mm -hmm. a he, but uh, they, they're speaking to a particular audience that is going to react to that. They will see the message yep. that is in that message. You know, I didn't know that. But, mm -hmm. you know, again, that's why it's important to bring people in who can explain those things and show them to you. And then, and, and then you can get to expand what you see as the, the greater narrative and hopefully report that. You were at American University and, and you, you've taught at at uh, New York University, you know, how front of mind are, are these issues of division and diversity in the students at this time, do you think? Oh, my gosh. Does it seem like something more than, than in the past? Or Well, I mean, I think, yes, because of our times. You know, I mean, it's like, you know, all of us are living in relationship to these, our political era and the polarization of it. So students are definitely you know, very attuned to this. And in fact, I had a, I had a coffee, the final class I taught at NYU, and it was also, again, overlapping in this period when I was at 538 was a race relations reporting class. And the student cohort was fascinating. I had a guy who was 30 years old, who had been in the Israeli special forces for five years. And he was an undergrad, you know, it was, I taught both grad and undergrad. And he was like the 30 year old military veteran undergrad. And my favorite story about him was that to decompress after his years in the special forces, he spent a month doing just survivalist stuff, just, you know, like surviving in the Negev desert. So it'd basically be like, you know, taking some food and water and like, doing the 30 day cleanse in the, you know, like, I was like, Oh, my wow. gosh, you know, you're so hardcore. So he just he had so many eye roll moments around, you know, the younger undergrads who didn't have a lot of life experience. But there was another person in the class who was one of the young undergrads who was a former undocumented immigrant. And she had come here from a Latin American country with her family, and they got their papers sorted. So by the time she came, she could talk very freely about it. And now she is, you know, poised to do some reporting on the next election. So I, I'm just really proud of that. But to have that crossroads, one of the gifts of some of these universities like NYU and American that can bring a really big cross-sectional population is that you, you have a lot of roadway to talk through things like how did you arrive at your understanding of race and even what is race? So the Israeli student was like, my race is Jewish. He's like, I don't relate to your racial categories. Like I'm Jewish. And in fact, he was uh, I'm trying to remember exactly where his family was from, but they were, they were from sort of more of the, the Eurasian nations originally mm -hmm. before immigrating. So he just was like, he's like, my race is Jewish. And when I'm here in the US, I don't understand your whole white, Asian, blah, blah, you know, thing. So I think that sometimes if you're in a situation where you have students where you can access these varieties of life experiences, it's a real gift. But also even in one of the things that I think is really important is that 
places where there's less racial diversity in the student body, whether it's, you know, a majority person of color school or a majority white school, you still have all of these process questions you can ask. Like, you might not be able to have a black student in the room who can discuss what it's like to be black, but you can talk about things like, again, this question of how did you come to understand race? At what age? How did you come to understand money and your family's relationship to money? Which, you know, I think class is easily as complicated as race. Do you think people, I forget what it's called, but there's this kind of sociological measure of how you think other people are perceiving you that is really interesting. So it's like, you can ask people like, do you hate group X, Y, or Z? But you can then ask group Z, do you think people hate you? (laughs) And um, and things like that. And it's like, how do you think other groups perceive you? Like, so for example, another student in this race relations class was a white Southerner. And we talked about the ways that white Southerners are stereotyped as less intelligent, you know, backwards, blah, 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 blah. So I just think that no matter who's in your class or your newsroom, you can have a dynamic conversation that then builds trust and enriches your ability to do the work. So, yeah, and that was kind of leading into my next question, which is, you know, there are journalists in all stages of their, li- of their career that are that are sort of dealing with this and trying to figure out how they can improve their, their coverage of diversity, their coverage of you know, this divided America. What advice would you give to them? One of the things that I really keep looking at is conflict resolution. One of the things that happens in newsrooms is that journalists are not known for being the most diplomatic. And we often do make some snap judgments about who outranks who, whose ideas are right. And when there is a discussion that is tricky, what is the conflict resolution system in your newsroom, I think is really important, or even in your class? Well, I don't think we're going to solve all these problems in no, this little but podcast. It's, it's been super fun talking about them. And also, I think yeah. there are solutions. Like, it's like that whole idea of just being generous of spirit and living with the golden rule, do unto others, is perhaps the best thing that we can ask newsrooms to do. I mean, I believe on some levels, all of these questions of editorial judgment, ones that we can figure out if we bring a spirit of generosity into the very stressful work that journalists do. Yeah. And I think that's probably the best way to end it. Farai, thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks so much, Michael. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, why not sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter? You get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. It takes a lot of people to put together an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicole Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music. Amia Brust helped with our booking. Nicholas Hunter provided a web assist. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening.